fall on, upon deaf ears and you would bless this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That, who you're looking at there and, and hearing, that's Beethoven. Beethoven, um, already in his 20s, was a world-renowned composer, an absolute superstar. In his 20s, he was already recognized as maybe the greatest composer of all time. And he wasn't even 30 yet. He was also in his 20s when he started losing his hearing. And he gradually lost it over a decade. It got worse and worse and worse. And he got more and more frantic and panicked. This was the late 1700s turned in to the, the very early 1800s before he was just functionally deaf. He withdrew more and more from society. He got more and more panicked. The medical treatments were bizarre by our standards. They were worthless by any standards. There was no system of sign language. So the only way he could communicate was writing notes. That might get a little loud on us, by the way. <laughs> uh, imagine in any kind of a group how frustrating that would be. When they, because everyone can't write a note at the same time and pass it around. So he just became a complete recluse. He, he considered taking his own life. He, was, he despaired. But he also noticed he was, if nothing else, undistracted. And so in that season of deafness, he never forgot how music worked together. It's like he could hear it in his brain and in his heart. And so in the decades of silence, he wrote some of the most well-known, most beautiful pieces of music. We're still listening. We're listening to one right now. The dude was deaf when he wrote that. For Beethoven, his loss, though he never would have liked it, he would have loved to have his hearing back, but that loss became gain. Jesus said once that anyone who wants to save his life must lose it. And the one who loses his life for my sake will save it. There's this, this idea within biblical Christianity that we have to lose our life to gain real life. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about that today. The Apostle Paul became a great example of that concept. He had to lose what had become his entire life in order to gain Christ. And once Paul gained Christ, an interesting thing happened. You know what happened? Once Paul gained Christ, he lost even more. It's not that he gained Christ and then all of his dreams came true forever and ever. 
Paul will say today that he lost everything even after he gained Christ. Where we pick up this morning, Paul has just said this. We're only going to study verses 4 through 11, but I put 3 on the screen this morning because Paul has just said a real Christian is someone who puts no confidence in the flesh. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about what the flesh means, the way Paul uses it. And the flesh inside of each one of us is not necessarily, it's not just the part of us that wants to do obviously naughty things. The flesh is just a part of us that wants what any natural human being will want. And sometimes that will point us toward obviously naughty things. But sometimes our flesh wants to be good enough on our own. Our flesh wants to be obedient enough, to be adequate enough, to be moral enough so God will look at us and say, that one right there, that woman, that man is good enough. Look how good he is. We, want, we can want that in our flesh. And Paul has said a Christian is someone who puts no confidence in the flesh. And now today, Paul's going to write, I don't say that we put no confidence in the flesh as someone who's never tried. Because Paul's going to write, I spent my whole life trying in my flesh to be good enough that God would like me and accept me. And then Paul's going to show us today what he had to lose. And I think we're going to learn at least one thing we must lose if we're going to gain Christ. Let's read our passage this morning, a very famous passage. I love this passage, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 4 and read 4 through 11. So after just saying we, a Christian puts no confidence in the flesh, Paul writes this. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I might gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that righteousness which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's our passage. We start in verses 4 through 6 where Paul lays out what I'm going to call Paul's resume of his flesh. Paul, in these three verses, describes if anybody was ever good enough through 
moral behavior for, to be acceptable by God, it was me. Paul says, I was born in the right family. Um, I was born, I can trace my lineage all the way back to one of Jacob, the guy who was renamed Israel, to one of Israel's favorite sons, Benjamin. I know what try. I was circumcised in the eighth day. I was, I literally came out of the womb in a family that wanted to pursue God through behaving correctly. There was never a moment in my life where I wasn't trying to be good the way God said good looks. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said, according to the law, I was a Pharisee. That means Paul was a part of the branch of Judaism that tried the hardest to be good. They, they followed the law down to the minutia, the fine print. Jesus said the Pharisees tithed their spices. So everybody was supposed to tithe, but that they grew like dill in their garden when they picked the dill out to make pickles, kosher pickles, mind you. Uh, most people would just keep all of it. No, not a Pharisee. We'll tithe even like our paprika and junk. As to zeal, this might sound like a bad thing to us. As to zeal, Paul says, I was so passionate about righteousness that could come through the law, through behavior, that I persecuted the church. Paul, this is part of my good works resume. Because Paul said, I was so passionate about righteousness through the law that when this group called the church, called the Christians, called the way, when that group came along and said, you can be gifted a declaration of righteousness from God, regardless of behavior, I was so passionate about righteousness through behavior that I, I, I tried to rid the world of that bunch. And finally, Paul says, as far as righteousness, which is in the law, goes, I was found blameless. Now, Paul would never have said, before he was a Christian, Saul of Tarsus, his Hebrew name, would never have said that I'm sinlessly perfect. That's not what this means. Paul just says, you could go back through the records as I worked my way up the ladder of Judaism, uh, into the Sanhedrin probably. There's never one time where someone could say, Paul, the law says this and you're doing that. If no one ever acted good the way I acted good, nobody was ever gooder than I was good, Paul says. But Paul's going to say what I learned is that I was still bankrupt before God. Beginning in verse 7, Paul is going to introduce uh, some words that he will repeat that are financial words. These are words, this is, a, this is an old ledger sheet. Um, these are words from the financial world. We usually read them as gains and losses, which is the, a correct translation. But we could think of them as deposits and withdrawals. Uh, assets and liabilities, uh, credits and debits. Paul says, if you want to think about righteousness, it is true 
that the entrance into eternal life is righteousness. No one is going to heaven that God doesn't deem, judge to be righteous. It is the righteous who will shine like the stars. And Paul says, I spent my whole life, I always thought every time I did what was right, that was a gain. That was a deposit. That was an asset into my righteousness account at the first bank of Yahweh. Right? If I ever did anything that was wrong, that's a withdrawal. Every time I did the right thing, every time I rested on Saturday, and those other people worked, deposit in my account. When I tithed even my spices, asset. Every time I did the right thing, someone else did the wrong thing, deposit, credit, asset. Paul would have never said, I was sinlessly perfect, but he would, what he is saying is, I was better than almost anyone else. I was better than those folks. But now listen to what Paul says. Paul says, but whatever things were gains, were deposits into that account, were, were, were credits, were assets to me, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Don't miss what Paul's saying here. Let me tell you what Paul's not saying. Paul's not saying, I spent my whole life doing the right thing, thinking I was making a deposit into my account. At the end of my life, um, I thought my, my account would be in the positive. I had way more good, way more deposits than I had withdrawals. So I thought I was going to be good, and now I've learned those deposits were not enough. That's not what Paul's saying. It's true. It's just not what he's saying. Pay attention. Paul says, those things I thought were gains, were deposits, they were actually withdrawals the whole time. I thought those things were assets. They were liabilities. When I did the right thing, it took me farther away from righteousness before God. How can that be true? That's definitely what he says. But how can, that, how can doing the right thing take someone further away from, from the balance before God they need? I mean, it's not, it's not a bad thing to be Jewish, right? May it never be. The law's not bad, is it? May it never be. Doing the right thing isn't bad, is it? May it never be, Paul says. Over. So how can it be said that all, every time I did the right thing, those were withdrawals all along? Here's how. When someone like Paul did in his life, when, when someone becomes convinced, when I do the right thing, it gets me a little closer. 
When I do the right thing, it gets me a little closer to being okay with God. God will like me today if I mess up uh, less than I do the right thing. When someone has that picture in their mind of what it's like to be right with God, those good things they do might just keep them out of eternal life. They become a barrier between them and God. Because I, I'll begin to trust in the good things I have done to make me okay with God. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I tried so hard, and if Jesus hadn't uh, shown up and knocked me off my horse on the way to Damascus one day and showed me what holiness and righteousness really looks like, I would have spent my whole life thinking I didn't need any other righteousness besides the one I had earned on my own. You know, this is why in some sense, in some sense it is easier for someone to understand their need for the gospel if they've lived a, a life that is, that is wicked or immoral by anyone's standard. I'm not advertising or advocating for a life that way because it has all kinds of hang-ups. It causes all kinds of problems. And I can sit in my office uh, or tell you stories of how I've sat in my office with folks who have, are still struggling to get out of that stuff. But at least they understand this. If righteousness is what it takes to get into heaven, I need rescued. In some ways, it is way more difficult for folks out here who were born into the right family, who attended church their whole life, who don't even remember a time when they weren't drug here on Sunday morning. Folks that are good, hardworking, moral, upstanding, conservative Americans. In some ways, those are the ones that are hardest to convince. You need rescued from your unrighteousness. That's what Paul means by saying, the stuff I thought was putting my account in the positive was keeping me from the rescue that I actually needed. It's so hard sometimes to understand, I, I need rescued by God just as badly as does the prostitute, the addict, the homosexual, the murderer. There has always been, we don't have a problem with this one, there's always been plenty of focus on the church on repenting of sins, our sort of branch of the church. Repenting of sin is something we've got. It's a good thing. Repent of your sin. Sin lets the death creep into your life. It hurts people. It damages you and relationships. Repent of your sin. Turn your back on it. Move in a better direction. But that's a topic for a different sermon. Paul is talking about something else we need to lose or we will not gain Christ. We have to repent of our righteousness or we will never gain Christ. Paul had to turn his back on, change his mind about the idea that I'm actually pretty good. 
before I can be declared righteous by God, I have to admit first, I will never be righteous by God through my flesh, through my efforts, through my hard work, through my self-discipline, through my lack of sin, through my good deeds, through the religious things I do at this church or the other church I go to. That's why Paul says, all these things I thought were assets were actually liabilities. They're losses. Paul goes further in verse 8. And he says, more than that, and now he's in the present tense. This is the stuff I used to think were gains to me. But now that I'm a Christian, now I count all things to be lost in view of or compared with the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish so that I might gain Christ. Now hear Paul correctly here. Paul doesn't say everything in the world is a liability or a loss or a withdrawal. He says, I've come to, to consider all things to be a loss when I compare them to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Let me ask you, can I get, ask you to be serious with you, do some serious personal work this morning? Be honest, just with you. Here's what Paul says. I realized no matter what I could have in this life, if I could compare it to knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, no matter how good of a thing it was, it pales, it so pales in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, it's like it's garbage, refuse. He uses a shock value word that might be human sewage, to put it lightly. So he doesn't say that it is necessarily something bad or garbage. Just when I compare it to knowing Jesus Christ, it sure seems like it. So let me ask you, if you had a choice between 170 bushel corn for the rest of your life, or knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord? What would you honestly pick? If you could choose between a championship in your favorite sport every year and you being the first team on the all-state whatever, or knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, what would you pick? You know what Paul's talking about? Where Paul says, I count all things to be lost, to be rubbish. You know what Paul has lost by the time he writes this? His health. Because he had some sort of health issue that God won't heal him from. You just keep following me, bucko. His health, his freedom. He's in prison while he writes this. His, in his past life, he lost all of his friends, all of his colleagues, his previous career, at least the religious side of his career. But he says, that's okay. Compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, it's all garbage. Even my freedom, even my health, 
And if they come and tell me they're going to execute me, then even my life. Here's another place where Paul says, once I have gained Christ, my financial account before God is in such a good state, nothing can phase it anymore. There's nothing. Once I have Christ in the asset column through faith, I have infinity for eternity, right? Well, if I have infinity for eternity plus $100 million now, what's infinity plus $100 million? Still infinity. What if I have infinity for eternity plus poverty now? What's the balance? Infinity. If I have infinity plus all the athletic uh, prowess and um, recognition in the world plus infinity, I still just have infinity. If I have infinity and I'm crippled, I still just have infinity. Paul says, once I have Christ in the gain column, there's nothing I can add that adds in any significant way to my balance, and there's nothing that can be taken from me that will sniff what I've already been given. How many of you would say or might ask, Paul, what's it, what's it really mean, though, to gain Christ? What do you mean by that? Can you hash that out a little bit? To gain Christ, does that require a bit of explanation? If you think it does, Paul thought so, too, because that's what verse 9 is. <laughs> verse 9 is going to start with the word and. It's an exegetical conjunction, and I just said that because I like to sound really smart sometimes. It just means he's going to explain what he just said. Paul says, I was willing to turn my back on all this stuff. It has no relationship to this. It has no uh, um, value in comparison to this. Gain Christ. What's that mean? To gain Christ means to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, from my behavior, but having a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's an alien righteousness. Do you want to gain Christ? I'm going to ask that again. Do you want to gain Christ? then you have to put no confidence in your ability to have a righteousness of your own. That's what Paul's saying. I have to just want to be found in him. Do you hear how passive that is? Paul said, I lost everything not to find something. I lost everything to be found, to get found in Christ. To gain Christ means to just be found in Him. My sin went on Him on the cross and He was punished fully for it. His righteousness gets gifted to me, this alien righteousness that comes from God. I didn't do it. I didn't earn it. I didn't claw for it. It just came to me as a free gift the moment I believed 
that Jesus Christ died instead of me. Now listen, that's gain. That is gain. Paul says, I didn't work for this. I just realized I didn't have it and I needed it and Jesus Christ was the only place, the only one who could give it. And now I have Christ in my ledger sheet in the asset column. Now, where does, where does that kind of gain leave a person? Maybe you, you, you hear that and think, well, Pastor Matt, what's to stop someone? Why, why don't you just take your get-out-of-hell-free card and just go back to living and pursuing whatever I wanted to pursue anyway? I'm holding this alien right. This is not my own. I can't add to it. I can't subtract from it. So who cares? Why don't I just make the aim of my life whatever I wanted before I believed? Well, if you've never asked something like that, I don't think you've ever heard the actual gospel because it's an excellent question. Paul's going to tell us on the next slide in the last two verses what the aim of life ought to be for the Christian. But first, why don't I just pursue all of uh, the, the, the desires and hopes I had before I became a Christian? Why don't, why don't I just take my get-out-of-hell-free card and go right back to building my kingdom, making as much money as I can, getting as famous as I can, having as much fun as I can? You know why? Because if you compare that stuff to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, you'll find out it's garbage. You're not pursuing what's best even though sometimes it feels like you are. It, you're not, and I'm not. So Paul says, once I got Christ in my asset column, it left me with a new aim in my life. I no longer had the aim to have a righteousness of my own. So when everybody looked at me, they thought, boy, that guy's got it all together. He's a good person. I want to be just like him. That's no longer my aim. And Paul was never a guy that, that, uh, that pursued the more sinful things in life. Paul says, so here's my aim. It's really simple, that I may know him. That's the aim. That's, that's Paul's new aim in life. That I might know Jesus. Folks, do you know that's what Christianity actually is? It is not behavior control. It is not a huge list of rules that you must follow. It's a way to know God. It's a way to be in a relationship with God. And the Bible's really cured really clear. The only way we can know God is through knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. He is Jacob's ladder. He is the stairway to heaven. He is the only way that we can know the Creator. Paul says, that's my whole aim now, that I may know Him. What's that mean? Well, epexegetical conjunction again. 
I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and I want to be conformed to his death. I want to be conformed to his death. You know what that means? I want to be like Jesus when Jesus was hanging on that cross. Well, now that's a weird thing to say. I almost made this the introduction to the sermon. I'll just tell it to you now. Here's what I was going to do before I did the Beethoven thing. I was going to have you take out a pen and on your bulletin, I want just write down, think about Jesus and all his abilities and everything he did in the Gospels. I want you to write down what's one way, what is the main way you wish you could be like Jesus was back then? If we were honest with ourselves, we might have said things like, I wish I could heal like Jesus could heal. Uh, maybe because we're in church and somebody else might see my answer, we might say things like, I wish I could love like Jesus loved. I wish I could feed the minions using just a sack lunch, right? I wish I could walk on water, save a lot of money on boat fuel that way. How many of you have written down this? I wish I could be just like Jesus when he was on the cross. That's what Paul said. I want to know him. What's that mean? I want to be just like him while he was on the cross. It's not on my goal sheet. Here's what Paul means. To get there, you have to do this first. You have to know and be confident in the power of his resurrection. The resurrection is when Jesus was killed, he was put in the grave. Three days later, he was brought back to life, right? Is Jesus the only one who will be resurrected, or are there more coming? No, Paul said he's the first. The first fruits among a whole harvest of those who will be resurrected. Paul said, I, want to, I have to start here. I've got to be very confident that the power of his resurrection is coming for me someday too. My, my best life ain't now. My best life is then. Right? Jesus, confident, was so confident in the power of the resurrection, it let him be obedient to the one he knew and loved, his Father. So obedient that he could suffer and then he could die knowing this isn't it. There's nothing better than obedience to the Father. Paul says, I want to be like that. So it's not that I want to take my get out of hell free card and just run and do whatever I want. No! I want with Christ in my game column, I want to know Him. I want to be like Him. I want to be so confident in the resurrection that's coming for me as I live this life attaining to my resurrection for my death that I want to be so obedient, so in love with Him that no matter what He asks me to do, I want nothing more than to do it even if that obedience looks like death on a cross. That's my aim in life, Paul says. And Paul should be careful what he asks for. Because it's coming for Paul. And Paul says, I want to attain from the res to the resurrection so hard that if God asks me to be beheaded for this faith, I want to sing his praises while the axe falls.
Paul says, we have to lose before we can gain. We have to lose the illusion of our righteousness to gain, which is far greater than anything else we can lose. And then when God in his obedience asks us to lose even more, we can compare that to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and say, all right, I guess that's got to go too. That's when obedience comes, right? My obedience to the Lord is not a requirement to knowing him. My obedience to the Lord comes from knowing him. But there's nothing better, and I compare that sinful thing to knowing him, and I'm like, well, that is easy to go, but then it's also this. I might compare my career. I might compare what I spend all my time doing, and it's not wrong, and you can't tell me there's anything wrong with this, what I'm doing. That's not the question. Is it where Jesus wants you? Does it help you gain more of him? So let me ask you as we land the plane here. First, and maybe most importantly, if you think it's a chance you would go to heaven when you die, why? It's a very healthy exercise to ask yourself that. If God lets me in, on what basis? If you think of anything besides what he did for you on the cross, you're, you're trying to make deposits into a bottomless purse. You, you're, you're counting on assets that are actually losses. Your good thing, the, your good things, your good works, your, your, your religious activities might keep you out of eternal life because they might keep you from gaining the free gift of knowing Jesus Christ. By the way, that's what eternal life is. Isn't that what Jesus said? Eternal life is not when I get to go where I won't have any pain anymore and I won't have any problems and nobody will say mean things to me and I'll get to live in this house God made for me. And I'll enjoy my life forever and ever and ever. That's not eternal life. Jesus said eternal life is that they might know you, Father, and know Jesus Christ whom you sent. That's eternal life, knowing Jesus. So if you trust in the right thing to gain you access to the Father, then maybe the next question we need to ask is, what really is the most important things in, in your life? What are those things that keep you from pursuing Christ? That really are to you more valuable than knowing Him? And then I want to encourage you to aim your life at knowing Jesus Christ. Don't aim your life at behaving good. Aim your life at knowing Jesus Christ. Do life with him. Spend time with him. Just try to be his friend. Talk to him. 
act, and then your obedience can come out of that. And you'll find it is not an obedience of your own, a righteousness of your own. It has been given by your friend who has put eternity, he has put infinity for eternity on the right side of your ledger sheet. Let's pray and we'll go to communion. Father God, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. I thank you for the Apostle Paul taking someone who was so good and teaching him. He may, uh, he may have been righteous enough to keep himself out of trouble, but he was not righteous enough to get himself into heaven. God, there are those here who don't know you or who are trusting in anything else other than the shed blood of Christ on the cross. I pray you begin to change their minds and that they would repent of their righteousness and trust in Christ alone. God, help, help us to compare the things in our life to knowing you and then take the good things that you've given us in our jobs and our families and our hobbies, do those things with you, not instead of you, God, help us aim our hearts at knowing you. That we might be more like you. That we might pursue our resurrection and follow you in perfect obedience with that understanding that there's nothing that can be taken away from me that can scratch what I've been freely given. We love you, Lord. Now bless our time around the communion table. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. As the guys come forward to help me pass out the bread, we usually sing during one half of the communion. And if you want to sing this morning with, while our musicians sing, we invite you to do that. If you want to, if you want to pray, 